Who is God, and who are His people? What is God like, and in what ways should His people be like Him? More specifically, we might ask what features of God's character should be reflected in our own moral character as His creatures. In the readings for this week, there are two poetic descriptions of God and two reflections on what it means to reflect on God's character as truthful human servants. In Psalm 45, the psalmist paints a poetic picture of the relationship between a good king and his loyal subjects. In Song of Songs, chapter 2, the author depicts the beginning of a relationship between a man and a woman that is marked by intimacy and love. Both texts are characterized as love songs, and they both have something to say about the nature of the relationship between God and his people. One of the biblical theological realities that help us explain the types of things that are said in psalms like this one and in the Song of Songs is the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7, and also reflected in psalms like Psalm 2. Here God promises that one of David's sons will rule over Israel and have an everlasting kingdom and will be true and just and upright, and he will rule, he will bring about the obedience of the people. In light of this particular promise, the poets and prophets of Israel are constantly looking for who is this son of David and what will he be like. Many of the texts that reflect on this particular promise give us windows, give us portraits of what Messiah will be like, not only when he will come, but what he will be like. Psalm 45 is one of these texts. The psalmist begins, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So here, the observant scribe is going to say things about the king, is going to describe him, first in terms of beauty, then in terms of majesty, and then in terms of righteousness or justice. First, he describes the beauty of the king. In verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in the splendor of your majesty. In verse 4, he begins to describe the majesty of the king. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under you. Next, the psalmist describes the justice of this king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. At this point, the psalmist calls on the people, the people of Israel, to recognize these things about their king. He says in verse 10, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts the richest of the people. At the conclusion of this psalm, the psalmist describes the marriage of this king to his bride. In doing so, he utilizes language that's strikingly similar to the language that shows up to describe the relationship between the man and the woman in the Song of Songs. 
in verse 13, he says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her maidens following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The last words of this psalm speak to the reality of future generations, also emphasized is the descendants of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So here we have a reflection on the continuation of the line of this king and his sons. We also have a recognition that this kingdom will be remembered in all generations and that the praise of this son of the king will be eternal. So here the psalmist speaks of the beauty the majesty and the justice of this king and of the praise that will be remembered of him for future generations. In Song of Songs too, the relationship depicted between the man and the woman is intimate, patient, and public. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He responds, like a lily among thorns is my darling among young maidens. She responds, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Later she says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This passage is connected to a long and extended theological reflection in literary depiction of an intimate love relationship. But read alongside of Psalm 45, it can give us another, another facet of the character of a Davidic king among his people. Here we see that this relationship is marked by a public display of love. His banner over me shall be love. This is a context of provision, safety, and intimate relational commitment. And it is also patient. It occurs at the right time and in the right context. So Psalm 45, in the language of Song of Songs, provides us a description, an ideal portrait of a coming king, a coming son of David who will rule with righteousness, with beauty, with majesty, and with an everlasting kingdom. Texts like these help fill out the portrait of what God's Messiah will be and is. Alongside these poetic texts that describe the character of the king are two New Testament texts that talk about what is demanded by the people of God, not only external actions, but motives of a pure heart. Not only the actions of the king are worthy of analysis, but the character of the king makes all the difference. So too with the king's people. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is having a discussion with some of the Jewish leaders, some of the teachers of the law who had gathered at Jerusalem. Mark writes that some of Jesus' disciples were eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Mark explains that the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of elders. When they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they had washed, and they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Um, so this is the explanation that Mark gives so that we can understand what the Pharisees and teachers are asking of Jesus when they say, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. So this would be a logical question that Jewish leadership might ask Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus' reply is not only addressing that particular issue about the eating 
prior to washing and ritual cleansing, he tries to get at the heart of the matter here. Jesus replies in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about hypocrites like you, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus summarizes and says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Later, Jesus calls the crowds together and says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. A little later, he also says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So here Jesus makes the point, in the way that Mark has portrayed this scene, that while Jesus will interact with the external regulations, he's most concerned about what's going on inside of the people's hearts. Mark and Jesus' point here is that you could, add, you could be doing everything right according to the traditions and the interpretations of the religious leadership, and yet still have a heart that is rotten inside or that is not fulfilling the requirements of the law. The book of James is one of the places in the New Testament where the wisdom of Old Testament books like the Proverbs and the wisdom of Jesus' teaching is picked up and reflected upon for the life of the New Covenant community. In the first chapter of James, James echoes Jesus' comments about traditions of men and the heart of the matter. James writes in verse 19 of chapter 1, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. James here summarizes all of what he's just said by saying that the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. From two different angles in Mark chapter 7 and James chapter 1, we get a reflection upon the relationship between external obedience and internal purity of the heart, where it's possible, as the Jewish leaders envisioned, for you to be ritually clean and yet still be unpure in heart. James argues as well that if you are impure in heart, good works and actions will flow from that. You will be able to be known by the things that you are doing that flow out of a faith-filled commitment to God and his standards. There's a lot going on in all the texts that we talked about today from these readings, but one of the major themes that arises is that everything depends on the character of the king, the character of the ruler. If this ruler is marked by love, by majesty, by beauty and justice, then responding to him in faithful obedience, seeking to have all of your actions flow with that same beauty, love, justice, and mercy 
is entirely appropriate. Because the king is beautiful, majestic, just, and full of love, we too can love. We too can work in a way that is honoring to him and for the good of others. Loving God and loving neighbor is not just a slogan, but is something that fits the theologic of obedience to a good king who enables his people to love others out of an overflow of the love they receive from him. Praise the Lord for his grace. Thank you.